Mark Twain, he wrote some very interesting things, not saying that he was a believer by any stretch of the imagination, but he does have some interesting things to write about. One of his interesting stories was Captain Stormfield's Visit to Heaven was the name of the little short story. And basically it was a tale that was obviously intended to be completely absurd. I mean, it was not meant to be realistic. It's meant to be absurd. So the story goes like this. Captain Stormfield, he died and he was on his way to heaven. But on his way to heaven, he could not resist the temptation to race a comet in the heavens. So he's out racing a comet. And he ended up, of course, way off course on his direction as he was heading towards heaven. So in sort of a heavenly missing persons bureau, an angel is sent out to try to find Captain Stormfield as he's chasing down this comet. So the angel wanting to help went on a balloon, what, on a balloon alongside a map, huge map of the universe. And his job was to locate our solar system so he could find Captain Stormfield. The map was about the size of the state of Rhode, Rhode Island, Twain wrote. So you can picture the, ma- uh, the angel up in a balloon, trying to overlook this huge map, the size of the state of Rhode Island, looking for our solar system so they can locate the missing person, Captain Stormfeld. Three days later, the angel came back down to report that he might have found our solar system, but he couldn't be sure. It may just be a fly speck on the map. Just an absurd piece of exaggeration, sure. Never intended to be taken seriously? Sure. But we know that Mark Twain may not have been too far off. We are like a tiny speck on the edge of the universe. Could the creator of this universe ever be concerned about us? We are so small in the vastness of this universe. Would God even care about us? Does he even know that we're here? Or is it just a fly speck? on a map the size of Rhode Island that may be our solar system or may not. Does God care about man? Psalm 8, man created as God's vice regent to rule his creation, failed in his task. And in Christ, the role of man in creation is restored to its original purpose. Psalm 8, wonderful psalm. It, it, it helps us to understand exactly our place in this, our role in this whole thing, and then what Christ has done on our behalf. So David begins the psalm with a glorious revelation of God's divine power in the heavens. And then he pauses on mankind and the vastness of this huge universe. God condescends in love to him and whom he has made Lord over his creation. Look at verses one and two. The title to this psalm, it's David's psalm, to the choir master, so it's a song, it's a hymn. According to the Gittith, we don't really know what that is, maybe a musical term, maybe a musical instrument, maybe from Gath is kind of the origin we're thinking, we're not quite sure, so we just leave it at that, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. Why? To still the enemy and the avenger, to give them the shut up factor. Be quiet, still their voices. 
The song opens and closes on the same note. Did you see that? Look at verse number nine. It opens and closes on the same note. So they're like two bookends to the psalm, but it wants us to, 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 reg- to see, oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So the idea is to draw attention, first of all, to the name of the Lord and everything that entails, all of his character, his reputation, everything he is. Our, na- our idea is drawn towards that. We would say, oh Lord, oh Yahweh, L-O-R-D, all capital letters means Yahweh, the, the covenant-making God, the covenant-keeping God, the faithful God. Oh Lord, Yahweh, our Lord, our Adonai. It's an idea of master, Lord. In other words, we're responsible to him. We're, we're submitted to him as our creator. So not only is he the covenant-making God, but he's also our master, our Lord, whom we are submitted to. For God's name, Yahweh, is glorious. It's worthy of all praise. For he is Lord, he is sovereign over his creation. The language distinguishes God from his creation. He's not the same as, he's not the same essence of his creation. He's above his creation. He is transcendent. He is above, he is other than. But it also speaks of the idea that he's within his creation. He comes within his creation to affect his creation. He's also very imminent. So the idea of transcendence and imminence is wrapped up here in this psalm as well. God's name and God's majesty are poetically synonymous. It means the same thing. For the majesty of both God's person and creation are revealed to mankind in the divine name and all that it implies. So they're poetically synonymous here. And the glory of God, God's glory is stamped on the visible creation. You can look out at the creation as marred as the creation is, as imperfect as she is right now. You can look out at the creation and say, God exists. He is Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So we have a testimony of who God is. Yes, we have a special revelation of who he is and people need to know that, but they can turn to the created order and say, ah, God exists. I'm not sure who he is, but he's there because it declares his glory. The word majestic suggests splendor and magnificence, probably words in the English language that you and I cannot even come up with to describe how great God is. God's name, that is God's character, is exalted above this creation because it's from his character comes this creation. He is above it. Psalm 138, 2 says, I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. That's how great his name is. And everyone should stop and pause at the name of Yahweh and fall to your face and worship him is the idea. But then we have enemies out there. Enemies that don't want anything to do with God. These enemies symbolize human strength, the strong ones, the self-sufficient ones, the self-exalting ones, the arrogant ones. That's the idea of the enemies here. They do not recognize the majestic name of God. They're enemies. But what's very interesting is from the mouth of babes, we still the voices of those enemies. And the babes are simply this. It symbolizes human weakness and humility. So you see the contrast. You have the enemies, those who are self-exalted, those who are arrogant, those who do not recognize God's holy name. And then you have the babes, the humble ones, the ones submitted, weak ones. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five, about this being humble, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed Blessed are those people who believe that they're bankrupt in spirit and need God to take care of them, to fix the problem. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The humble, the humble have a strength greater than that of God's enemies because they take his name in their mouths and they act on his name. The exhortation is to a childlike faith 
that removes any barriers of having a, a, a deep walk with the Lord. Humility, weakness, God uses strength from children to silence his enemies. He ever heard children, they say that, you know, what is that? Kids say the darndest things, or I remember when the name of that show was many years ago. They say some really brilliant things though sometimes, not just silly things, brilliant things. The story is told by Eric Ritz of a, a little girl in Sunday school class who was asked, what did she learn from the story of Jesus turning wine into water at the wedding feast of Cana? where they ran out of wine and the celebration was gonna be disturbed and all of this problem that was gonna come about because they had no wine at the wedding feast in Cana. So the little girl responds back with just simple childlike faith. She answered, why was it important? What did she learn? She learned simply this. It's always a good idea to have Jesus around. <laughs> out of the mouth of babes. How many times? So what we're talking about is the humble ones, the ones who realize their weakness from the strength of God's name, put down the enemies because the enemies are speaking lies. They're not speaking truth. According to Jesus, children and their simple faith are the best representative of God's kingdom. He even uses them in this ministry to talk about them being weak, them being humble. Matthew 18, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you be turned and become like children, humble, weak, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's that attitude. It's the attitude of realizing your weakness and your humility, not self-exalting, not arrogant. For God has chosen in this world to take from the foolish and the weak in the eyes of this world to put to shame those that are so wise and so intelligent. Paul told the Corinthians, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God's glorious name. Oh, his name is exalted above the earth. He is glorious. But that still doesn't answer the question about us. In the vastness of this universe, in everything that's out there, this tiny fly speck on a map of the universe, why would God even care about us? Why would he even deem to, to shine his face upon us? Why does he care? I think he answers that in verses three to the end of the chapter. David continues on. When I look at your heavens, I can imagine him sitting out in the, in the sheep, watching his sheep at night out in, the, out, in the, out in the desert, looking at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the digits of God, not his strong right arm, his fingers created everything. The moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. And some of your translations say angels, and we'll talk about that in just a second. And crowned him with glory and honor. Us little insignificant man coming from the dust of the earth, he has crowned with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So he concludes like he began. 
But right here in this section, he says, listen, God is mindful of us. But the question is, why should you be? And why would you take us, this insignificant creature, and place us Lord over your creation, God? That we are to manage your creation. Why would you do that? Why do you care about us? So David praises God as his creator. A person can imagine David sitting out at night, listen, look, you ever been camping or hiking at night and you're away from all the street lights? You know what I'm talking about? It's like, whoa, you don't imagine all the stars that's in the sky. You can imagine David out there watching his sheep at night and there are no street lights. There are no city lights to get in the way of his viewing the heavens. Could you imagine him sitting there looking at the expanse of heaven and thinking, what is man that you are mindful of him? How could you even care about us? I could see it. And I wonder how many people throughout history have answered, asked this question. You've probably asked this question, maybe a little bit different. Do I have value is what you ask yourself. So with the lofty grandeur of the stars of heaven, mankind indeed appears to be of little significance and completely unworthy of God's attention. Yet God grants us glory and honor. In contrast to God, the heavens are tiny. They're pushed and prodded into shape by the fingers of God. But in contrast to the heavens, which seems so vast in perception, it is mankind that's really very tiny. Why would you care about us, God? In the grand scheme of things, why are we important? A popular science TV program made this statement. And I can't verify it's true, but it makes sense to me if you think about it. They said, if you take your thumb and put it out in front of you at arm's length, the breadth of your fingernail, out into the vastness of the heavens, the breadth of your fingernail covers 250,000 galaxies. Now you figure that, you span that out into eternity, long as large as the universe. The psalm here is based on the story of creation and sets forth this ideal dignity of mankind. Why would you care about us, God? Because God has taken us, made us in his image and likeness and placed us over his creation as stewards of his creation. God has given mankind a position of extraordinary strength within this universe. And David marvels that God, the supreme creator, would even involve himself with mankind. Peter Craigie wrote, nothing in such vastness, it is inconceivable that human beings have significance or meaning. So the psalmist is setting us up for something. It is inconceivable that God, if there is a God, could remember each human being or give attention to each person. The poet deliberately creates this sense of despair first in order to make the positive answer to the question when it comes in verses six through nine, all the more powerful. So he's setting us up to give us more information coming on. What is man that you're mindful of him? Why would you even remember mankind? God has given to mankind dignity and honor and glory and set him over the works of his creation. He has exalted man to such a position that no other creature has. The next time you question your worth as a person, remember the value that God has placed on us. He values us. There's two words that are used for man here in this one sentence. The first one was enosh, which has the idea of weakness. And the second word for man, both translated English word man, second word was Adam, which is Adam, red, coming from the ground. So one deals with man, enosh, man's weakness. One deals with his place in creation. He's from the ground. He's from the created order. So Enosh and Adam. The questions in verse four are rhetorical and emphasize that mankind is an insignificant creature in the universe, yet God has placed honor and glory upon him. 
Psalm 144 says, O Lord, what is man that you regard him or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. We live 70, maybe 80 years if God is gracious to us. It's a shadow of eternity. What is man that you were mindful of him? He says, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. The word heavenly beings is the same. It's the Hebrew word Elohim which is the majestic plural name of God. It talks about his majesty. So you could translate it, made him a little lower than God, and it would be reasonable. But in the New Testament, and actually in the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word chosen was angels. And actually, when we get to the New Testament, the New Testament writers do use that term angels. So heavenly beings is a good translation. Heavenly beings. Man is weak in comparison to the angels, but in, their crea- but in their creation, God blessed man in making them after his likeness and image and given him glory and honor over all of his creation. David's amazed that finite, weak mankind should have this kind of responsibility in God's creation. Who are we? God's role in the beginning for mankind is that of a master within the created universe. Mastery over every living creatures within that universe. That was our responsibility. So he's taken us small, insignificant people and elevated us to a position of authority and delegated to us honor and glory. Genesis 1, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. He didn't say that as far as I know about any other created being. Angels, cherubim, seraphim, as far as I know, it's not mentioned about them. Only man. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So this insignificant little speck of a man, God is exalted to a position of honor and authority in his kingdom to oversee his great creation. While the perception is that mankind is insignificant in the grand scheme of things, the reality is God's purpose for creating man is to be his vice regent in this world. With great authority comes great responsibility as well. We are responsible now. Man was created as a king with the works of creation as his kingdom. Royalty is God's vice regents on this earth. So insignificant man is raised to a position of honor and glory, given dominion over God's creation. God's majesty has been displayed in his care and design for finite mankind. What is man that you are mindful of him? Yet you made him a little lower than the angels, but put him in a position of authority and power, delegated to, raised him up to this, this sublime position of king over God's creation. Small k, king over God's creation. Kyle and Dalich wrote, the most natural thought would be, frail, puny man is as nothing before all this. But this thought is passed over in order to celebrate with grateful emotion and astonished adoration the divine love which appears in all the more glorious light, a love which condescends to poor man, the dust of the earth. So you would think, oh, we're just insignificant. No, God has raised us up to this position of, of honor and glory and given us dominion over his creation. Then the psalm ends as it begins, a final book note for its content. 
See, we in the creation, in the original creation, we human beings, Adam and Eve, we had everything in Eden. We were in God's eyes, everything in Eden. We were to take that creation, which displays his glory, and we were to manage it so all the other people that came after Adam and Eve and the filling the earth would then see the glory of God in the created order. Our job was to show God's glory by managing his glory. We had everything in the garden and we threw it away. God had honored us to a position of this glory and honor. And we said, we don't want it. We would rather be our own gods. We'd rather follow our own way. We had everything and we threw it away. See, this Psalm doesn't deal with that. doesn't deal with the fall. It deals with the original state of mankind. What was man intended to be? What was the perfect man supposed to look like? The, the psalm doesn't deal with the fall, but we must take into account the fall because in the fall, everything changed. When we threw it all away, when we abandoned our creator, when we said we will be gods, we lost everything. Even in the fall, man's intimate relationship to creation was severed. After the fall, this is what happens. After they rebelled, after they threw away what they had in the garden, Genesis 3. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. The earth is now cursed because of Adam. The earth is not reaching its full potential that God intended for creation. The ground is cursed because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you and shall eat the plants of the field. I wonder if this is the case. Think with me, it's possible. Adam was created from the earth. Remember, God formed together, breathed into the nostrils of Adam and Adam became a living being. Adam is formed from the creation, from the earth. And now Adam's actions have an effect on that which he came from, the earth. It's now cursed because of him. It's not gonna, as beautiful as that is, as I love hiking, I love the beauty, I love seeing photographs of this creation. It is gorgeous, but it is not what it is supposed to be. It is far more glorious. And we're waiting to the day that it is restored beyond its original in the garden, something even better. All creatures were to be under Adam and Eve, but because of sin, that dominion has never been fully realized. Do you understand? We were meant to be kings and queens. Do you understand the depths of our betrayal, our rebellion to God, of what he gave to us and what we threw away in the garden? We're supposed to be kings and queens. So what can be done? We threw it away. We cursed the ground because of Adam's sin. What can be done? Well, that's where the writers of the New Testament give us some hope because we saw God's glory. Then we saw man's glory that was delegated by God to him. But now we see that man lost that glory, abdicated his role as sovereign over God's creation, small s. But now we're going to see how the glory is going to be restored one day. In Christ, the idea of mankind is fully realized. Remember we talked about Jesus being the perfect man, the perfect Israel, the perfect son, uh, the perfect Adam, all of those that failed. He was perfect. He was perfect in, in obedience and faithfulness to the father. He was the perfect son. He was the perfect human. 
Adam failed, but Christ was perfect. Where Adam failed in his relationship to God, the, the son, always in obedience to the father, succeeded. So in him, the idea of mankind now is fully real, what we were supposed to be. In the incarnation, that is when God took on flesh, Jesus entered into a state only a little below the angels, we are told, into the human race for a little while in order to raise us, redeem mankind above the angels someday, rightful to our position that we were supposed to be in at creation, but we forfeited it. The writer of the book of Hebrews quotes this psalm. That's why we know it's bigger than just about mankind. It's about the perfect man, the Messiah, who took on flesh and became the perfect man. 100% God, 100% man. And the writer of Hebrews wants to contrast man's failure with their exalted destiny. Man failed, but they will be raised up one day because of someone else's actions. Look at Hebrews chapter two. It has been testified somewhere what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? Already we know that's Psalm 8. It's a direct quotation from Psalm 8. So it's referring back to Psalm 8, but is it talking about Adam or is it talking about somebody else? Let's read on. You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. So now we have an association with the Messiah and Psalm number eight now. Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the sufferings of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone, raising us up to our destiny, that is believers in him. The original dominion over the earth given to Adam and Eve was sub subsequently lost, but it is now restored in the perfect man, the Messiah. He restores what Adam lost. If, even at the triumphal entry, or let's call it the royal entry, because there's not much triumph going on at that time. The royal entry, the king is coming into Jerusalem. Jesus said the cries of the children were a fulfillment of this verse, affirming once again, this is a messianic psalm. It's bigger than just Adam and Eve. It's bigger than that. Matthew 21, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he did, he's healing people, blind and lame, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were happy. Oh, you're reading with me. No, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said, yes, have you never heard? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Again, he quotes Psalm 8 to let us know this is more than Adam and Eve. This is about the Messiah who comes to restore what we lost in the garden. Man lost his sovereignty over creation in his rebellion and creation suffers until Christ made the restoration of creation possible. Do you know what we did to creation? We cursed the ground? Yes, but it's bigger than that. Romans 8, listen to what we did. Humans did to the creation. For the creation waits with eager longing. What for? For the revealing of the sons of God. When we become revealed as believers, sons and daughters of God as believers, when we're finally revealed to the world, vindicated that God is true. For the creation was subjected to futility. And that means it cannot reach its intended purpose subjected to fertility, not willingly. It didn't say, hey, I volunteer for this. It was thrust upon creation. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. 
in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Listen, when death entered into the human race, death entered into creation as well. We marred creation in the fall, not just ourselves. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, believers, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. And what is that? The redemption of our bodies, the resurrection, the redemption of our bodies. When all things now have come to its end, to its fulfillment, all things, the restoration of creation is linked to the believer's glorification. And the believer's glorification is linked to the redeeming act of Christ on the cross. Do you see how that works? That which the first Adam lost in the fall, the last Adam, Christ, has more than regained beyond what we lost in the garden. 1 Corinthians 15, which we talked about last week. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. I know there's a lot of subjections and subject. I got all that. When Christ fulfills all that was intended for us, he's gonna hand the kingdom over to the father and say, now God be all in all. He will restore what we lost in the garden and even more so. It's the idea of a new mankind, a new creation he has brought about because of his death and resurrection. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5 says, he is a new creation, a new order has come, a new race in Christ. Remember we talked about being in Adam and being in Christ? Again, if you're in Adam, you have all the effects of Adam, which is sin and death. If you're in Christ, you have all the effects of Christ's work, which is life and righteousness. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So when we sensed our rebellion, our betrayal against our creator. We stood there with our heads bowed in shame. How could we do this? Wonder how many discussions around the campfire Adam and Eve had. Man, we blew it. We had everything in the garden. Look where we are now. I'm working really hard, but I can't even get these things to sprout. They don't seem to grow like they did before. I'm working awful hard and not getting a lot in return. So we stood there with our heads bowed in shame because we had lost what we had, were intended to have. Glory and honor and being Lord over his creation, small l. We lost it. And as we stood there with our heads hung in shame, I can see Christ in his work on the cross, in a sense, come and lift our chins up and look us straight in the eye and say, I have redeemed you, you are mine and I'm setting all things new. I'm making it right. Yes, you failed, yes, but I have come to make it right. I am the perfect human. I will set all things right. Jesus is the perfect man as well as God. He is the model of redeemed mankind and restored human dominion over creation. And Jesus, the son of man, will rule all of his creation and we will reign with him one day as co-heirs with him because he has lifted us up again from our state of fallenness and betrayal and sin. He's raised us up to life and righteousness, sons and daughters of the creator God. Psalm 8. Let me, let me read Romans. Do I read Romans? No, Romans 8. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children, then heirs, 
Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provide we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So he has lifted our heads and say, you are mine, I have redeemed you. Come into the position you were intended to be. So Psalm 8 overflow goes something like this. Adam and Eve were created as God's representatives on this earth, given authority to rule over his creation. But Adam and Eve failed and rebelled in the garden, condemning the whole race and the ground and creation on top of it. But the son of man, Christ, God himself came into the human race. He came into the world through the incarnation and Christ now restored what mankind lost in Eden. And Christ restores believing humanity to a state that exceeds that of Adam and Eve. It'll be even far greater for us than it was for Adam and Eve in the garden. One day in eternity. Rebecca Wells wrote, as I gaze at the glorious sky laden with suspended stars, a brilliant moon casts shadows. The crisp cold morning air reminds me that winter is not far away. I pause to steady consolations, constant and sure like the love of our awesome God. I realize how small and insignificant I am, a minuscule speck under the vast glorious sky. To those at cruising altitude in an airplane, persons walking on the earth are not even dots. Yet God has crowned me with glory and honor. In God's sight, I am far more than an insignificant, unseen dot. I am unique. I am a creature made only a little lower than the heavenly beings, a creature who is able to fellowship with our creator. Gratitude for our loving God overwhelms me, she writes. As the morning sky reddens and the stars begin to dim, I give thanks for God's goodness, love, and mercy. And I add, we give thanks to Christ who restored what we broke to raise believing humanity to a new state of blessedness. That's what Christ has done for us. And that's what Christ has done for this created order as well. One day he will come and make all things new and it will be beautiful. I can't wait for that day. Insignificant, small, small specks. Yes, we are, but of great infinite value to our creator, God. Let's pray. Father, thank you. May we always have a humility in realizing our weakness. May we never become self-exaltant and arrogant. May we always come to that position where we understand who you are and where we are in relationship to you. But in saying that, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts that Christ has restored what we broke. We had everything, Father, in the garden. We threw it all away because we wanted to be gods. We exalted self and diminished you. Yet you promised in the Messiah, you will come and you will restore the created order to what it was intended to be, to fulfill its purpose. And that is to give you glory. Thank you, Father. We believe, we know it's coming. Until that day, we rejoice in what you have done for us in Christ and the effects of his sacrifice for all who believe. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.